Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, Today, we want to talk about some, I guess I'd call it more financial stuff because I know that that is a hot topic right now, given the fact that there's a lot going on in the world. Oh, is it? Yeah. So we thought we would take today and I would kind of give some thoughts and comments um, and then try to anticipate some of the questions or concerns that you guys are having about, you know, what is the right decision to make in an environment where there's so much up in the air. So much uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, it, it's extraordinary. You might say, well, there's always uncertainty about the future, which is true, but but it's not always equally uncertain. I mean, this is one of those periods where uh, it's hard to know how to plan. I mean, let's go over the headwinds or the sources of uncertainty. I guess we could start with Ukraine. That's a uh, big one. Huge issue, and we don't know how big of an issue it's going to be as we do this show today. Mm. So today is what? The 23rd? You're probably watching this, you know, a week or less later. But as of this point, you know, we we just don't know. Is this going to settle pretty quickly? I mean, is Zelensky, Putin, are they going to reach a compromise? Um, I would hope that Zelensky doesn't give away much. Right. I mean, I'm really, I'm really It's been rooting. going on a month now. I know. I know. And, I, <sighs> and I'm it's just so outrageous what Putin has shown himself capable of that I, I hate to think that yeah. that there could be a settlement where Zelensky just, you know, and I understand, I'm not criticizing him. If, I were, if any of us were in his shoes, we'd be tempted to settle if we thought that the alternative is we're going to be wiped out. Right. Bring peace some way. Yeah. Yeah. And salvage what he can of his country. I hope he doesn't do that because that would... That would go back to, for lack of a better way to put it, business as usual for Putin. Yeah. Now, there'll still be sanctions and there'll still be hardship. But the idea that Putin probably walks away and and endures even discomfort and misery for a period of time, that's that's no consolation because he's still in power. Right. And And I really would like to see this result in his being removed. And and naturally, we'd all like to see that happen without a thermonuclear war. <laughs> That's the scary part. Yeah. I mean, Is he really capable of doing something like that? You hear all types of arguments about that. Well, I think one thing about it, I think we all agree that he would be capable if it were an existential threat. I even think I read somewhere where he made that statement, which surprised me because it you know, it's essentially a concession that I won't use them unless I think Russia's existence is at stake. Um, but anyway, so we all know he'll do that, even if he hadn't said that. The question is, would he do it for far less reasons, far, you know, less, uh, you know, less defensible reasons? Right, right. So the Ukraine is a big issue, and, uh, and, and it affects how we think about inflation. It has an effect inflation because it affects supply chains. Yeah. Um, it affects oil prices, food prices. I mean, energy and agriculture are two big components of the CPI. 
And forget the CPI. They're two big big components for everybody's budget, and both are hugely impacted by this. I mean, we all know the extent to which energy prices are impacted. But apart from that, many people don't realize that Russia and Ukraine are a breadbasket of of the world to some extent. Now, the United States can outproduce any country in the world in terms of agricultural output. But in terms of supplying what has routinely been the source for people in in Southern Hemisphere mm-hmm. nations especially, much of that has come from the Ukraine and, and Russia. Russia, right. So those supplies are going to be disrupted. And for Ukraine for a long time, even if this is resolved in short order. So... Um, and then, of course, we have we can't forget the sanctions. So, to what extent yeah. is is Russia even in the aftermath of this, uh, their goods will be sanctioned, being provided anywhere around the world? Right. So that that's just a huge issue. But I'll go through these others a little more quickly. Um, we've had a pandemic, a pandemic which is you know one of these epic events for which there are few analogies because it occurs so rarely that you have anything as as uh, uh, ubiquitous around the world as this has been. Can you believe it's been two years? Uh, it's, it's amazing. It, it, yeah. It doesn't feel like it was two years, but it was two two very, very different years from yeah. anything we've known since the, uh, what was it, 1918, 1919? The Spanish flu? Yeah. So they had similar conditions, incidentally, back then, but, but this is, um, there just aren't, many analogies for this for us to point to where it's been quite this large and consuming. What do you compare it to in our lifetime, at least? Yeah, not in our lifetime. No. Not, not shutting down an entire economy. Mm-mm. Even an economist. I mean, if you were to ask any economist in academia, you know, tell us what happens when you shut down, when you order by fiat, all the effectively stores across industries to close, you know, can an economy, you know, turn a switch and come back on? Well, surprisingly, it looks like much of that has happened. It does seem that that there has been a rebound of sorts. Well, yeah, but then you have the problem with the worker shortage. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's... That's a huge implication. I think it's related to all of this, this um, quantitative easing. Um, we've had a very liberal, it's called an accommodative policy uh, through the Fed. We've had a very accommodative policy through fiscal spending, um, probably more than we should have, quite frankly. I'm sure some of it was necessary that the, the PPC money that was PPP, what is it called? Oh, um, anyway. The, yes, I know. The, the, yeah. Those funds that, that the first round of offerings, which occurred in 20, yeah, I can, I can see where those were clearly necessary, but, but additional monies that have been provided fiscally might have been unnecessary, might've helped stimulate the inflation in a way that wasn't necessary. But who knows? Maybe the inflation was just going to happen. Because remember, we have another factor here. So we've talked about the pandemic. We've talked about the Ukraine. Don't forget the fact that that here we are 12 to 13 years down the road, long in tooth of a bull market. Think about that in a bull market for that period of time. You may say, well, wait, but there was a 20% correction in 20 in April or I think it's early April of 2020, yeah, there was. But remember, that doesn't count. I mean, it doesn't count when. Why do you say that? Well, that because you shut. We shut down the entire economy. Okay. So, okay. So you know, it's it, there are 
there are uh, patterns in which economies behave over time, and there are rules of thumb that we've seen historically, and those rules of thumb are helpful in, in predicting what things will happen in the future. But then when you throw in some black swan event... Something where, so unusual. Yeah, where it's almost like a command economy. Well, it was a command economy. You know, we White House issues an order, the economy shut down or the industry shut down. Yeah. Um, and the effect is, of course, stock market goes down. So let, let's put that aside um, and say that here we've had a bull market that has gone on for close to 13 years. Mm-hmm. And, and just when we thought it was going to break, here recently, those of you who've been following the market, you've seen, well, oh, gee, it's seven days of declines, not just in the S&P, not just in NASDAQ, but Dow. I mean, all the the major indices were all going in unfavorable directions for right. for over a week. And everyone thought, okay, now it's coming. Everyone's braced for this big correction. Even you, even we who don't live our lives thinking about financial markets, for the most part, you know, I don't want to become an expert on how the Dow operates or experts on securities and debts. I know more than most people, but my point is I don't want to live in that world. I want to go about my business. Right. But but yet we've all been been pulled in in a way and we're leaning into this conversation because it has such huge implications for all of us. I'll bet all of you watching this know a lot more about, about financial terms, about markets than you did five years ago. Oh, and, yeah. You got schooled real fast. You did. I mean, you know, it, I mean it was a boot camp. It was a boot camp. Really, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Definitely a boot camp. So... I can throw a few phrases around and I can expect you guys to have some grasp of what they mean, whereas five years ago, maybe not. But mm-hmm. in any case, we we have to think about where we do anyway for a correction. I mean, if this has been going on for 12 years, a market that has been just steadily creeping up, it didn't go up like it were Mount Everest, but it was a steady climb. And then Mount Everest was the last year and a half. So would we have had this, would we be in for a significant pullback, a bear market? I'll use the word recession. Um, the bear market just refers to what's happening in the stock market, whereas a recession means the economy, right. the, the GDP has gone down for um, two consecutive quarters. So you have negative growth for two consecutive quarters is the technical definition of a recession. Well, we've not had that. So you're saying absent of what happen, you know, the pandemic, we were in for this I, something anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and and the only reason that we've had this this unusual phenomenon, um, and these are these are my views, which are to some extent the distillation of having listened to a bunch of economists and 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 weighing uh, various perspectives. So you may have your own, but there's this there's a pretty strong argument among many experts that that this extraordinary, this unprecedented role that our, our Fed has played in our economy that was never contemplated when the mm-hmm. Fed was created in 1913, it was not contemplated at that time that the Fed would move to front and center of determining not only how well our economy does, but where we spend money. I mean, their influence has grown and it threatens to grow further. It's taken on a life of its own. It is. And and it's become a little more, it's, it is more political than it oh, was intended yeah. to be. Yeah. 
uh, these things were all inevitable. And and yet I think there was some naivete in those, that Jekyll Allen early meetings in which um, this, this vision was ironed out by uh, capitalistic leaders right. in the in America and to some extent, I guess, the West. Um, so people like Morgan and others who are very prominent and who incidentally, uh, some of you will disagree with me. I think that they, most of them were not doing this as a scheme to enrich themselves. Now, a number of my friends disagree with this. I think that they often, when you are wealthy, there's this, uh, in, in England, you call it noblesse oblige. I it, like that. It, what it is looks that? Like, it looks like oblige noble, if you look the way it's spelled with some accent marks. But it's called a noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige. Uh, and, I like that. And so what it means is that when you're, when you're a part of the aristocracy in Europe, and particularly the UK, this is a concept floated around UK, but also you know, the continental countries, and you have obligations. And, and, and there was this, um, you often heard of these heroic endeavors on the part of members of the aristocracy, and they were the first to sign up for wars and be in the front lines. I mean, entire classes, almost the entire class of, of, of Eton and uh, uh, not so much Eton, which is the finishing school, but Cambridge, um, Oxford, I mean, their, their classes were decimated for, through World War I. And, and what that tells you is these these children of aristocrats were not were not pushing off this war to someone else. Their perception was that they had an obligation, right? And they were raised and taught that. Um, so they felt, look, if if we go to war, we need to be in the front. We need. They were officers often, but they died in huge numbers. So there's this concept of noblesse oblige that I think existed among a number of these industrialists who got together at the time, Jekyll Allen. Some of you I know are shaking your head. You're very cynical. These guys were rich. They wanted to get richer. I mean, that's a theory, but in any case, I think it was naive. It's like any time you have people who become patronizing toward toward the common man, and it's it, their, their intentions may be good, like people who are socialists. I think often rich people who become socialists uh, their intentions, let's assume, are good, uh, but but it's it's just stupidity and and it accrues to to harm of everybody, uh, right. sometimes catastrophic harm. If you look at what's happened in countries yeah. uh, around the world, thank God it's not happened to America yet. But yeah, yeah. Let's so hope. we don't know. So yeah. so anyway, um, so th- this vision of the Fed, whatever the motives of its founders, was you know, was one that the Fed was not going to be political and it certainly was not going to to subject the economy to its will. And yet that's what's happened. So its mandate originally was two things. The Fed was created to, number one, control inflation, uh, and number, which means economic stability. And the other was to assure full employment. Those are the two goals. And it was to be apolitical. So that's the reason the appointment process doesn't have anyone who's directly beholding uh, or reporting to somebody who is who is in office, in elected office. But having said that, I think that that what the Fed has done over the last 13 years is just transformative. I think it's it is something for which there's no precedent. So we don't know how we would have backed out of that. Let's yeah. assume Ukraine didn't happen. Let's assume there's no pandemic. How were we going to exit that after someone has the market has become so used to interest rates that 
that violate natural laws. There, there, there's talk, a phrase that's used a lot is a neutral interest rate, or sometimes you'll hear the phrase used, a natural interest rate. Okay. All that means is an interest rate that floats based <laughs> upon supply and demand of money. And it's a wonderful mechanism. It means when there's a whole lot of demand for people wanting money to borrow a lot of money, then guess what? The rates go up as they should. And that, that, that's a disincentive to get too crazy drunk on, on the punch bowl, right? Because the <laughs> rates go up and you think, no, 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 I can't afford any more debt. I better not get any more. And then they come back down. And finally, when, when no one's doing any investment, uh, like, like investment in capital expenditures of companies where they, they take profits and rather than distribute them in dividends or, or go out and blow it in smaller companies, go out and the families just go on vacations and whatnot. Instead, they take some of those profits and they invest them. It's called capital expenditures. So, so you, 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 know, you have an incentive when interest rates drop down more and there's not been this much demand for money is to take that opportunity with low interest rates and pour it into capital investments. Right. So though it's a natural law, so what happens when you when you decide you're going to muck with that and you're going to decide to play with it artificially, which the Fed can do because it controls the money supply. So the Fed decides that they think that we were a little too depressed after the, the and I'll start there, I won't go back, but you can actually trace uh, the Great Recession to, to policies of Greenspan. And, and it's, it's amazing that the way in which he increased and lowered uh, interest rates. And he lowered interest rate, federal interest rates, pretty dramatically over a point, even at a time when the economy wasn't really struggling. I mean, it's a, a year or two after, yeah. after the, the recession from 2000, the, the, the tech recession. So, so let's start with, with the Great Recession. So the Great Recession, we have this decision in the aftermath that, oh, you know, the economy, people aren't happy. And there may be some displeasure. There may be some discomfort. Right. Uh, so let's try to let people avoid that. So what they do is, and, and the word is used, you know, it's like a drug. And it really is a good analogy because that's kind of what you do if you're a doctor and you have a patient who who is going to go through some discomfort. The temptation is to give them a drug. Something that, to relieve the pain. Yeah, yeah, so that they don't feel it. Right. Uh, but now more and more doctors say, no, no, it's part of that process, like taking away a fever is a bad thing because the fever is a clearing Fever mechanism. is your friend. Fever is your friend, and, and it's a clearing mechanism. For a long time, it was thought that anytime somebody has a fever, we need to give them aspirin or, or ibuprofen or something else. Right. So, so that's a good analogy to think about kind of the role of the Fed. So the Fed, rather than holding back and saying, look, we need to wash out. We need to have a, a clearing of, of bad decisions, bad investment, bad companies that were just kind of hanging on. So when these things happen periodically, uh, they, they serve a very valuable function. Now, the Great Recession was a really tough, was a tough period. And I'm not suggesting the government should have done nothing. I, I, I think all of us, a lot of us, would say, yeah, some of the things that were done should have been done because, you know, it would have meant huge long-term effects right. for the financial markets, all these counterparties and, and these instruments that have been created. Anyway, so... Let's just focus, though, on the decision to continue with this. It's called quantitative easing. To continue providing these ultra-low interest rates to push them down, down, down until people feel better. And then once they start feeling better, we keep them there. And then if they start to not feel so good again, we, we lower them more. 
So people have gotten used to an interest rate and markets have and business people. Think of the thousands of decisions mm-hmm. that have been made involving billions, trillions and trillions <laughs> of dollars over the last 13 years based on free money. Think about it. What what discipline is there when you give away money? Uh, what risk would you take as an investor if you knew the money was free? Now, you'd have to pay it back. I'm not saying that that when you have what was close to a zero interest rate. I'm not saying that if you took a million dollars, you wouldn't have to pay back a million dollars. But does it make a difference whether you take a million dollars and there's zero interest associated with it? Versus, yeah. um, versus, you know, a million dollars with 5%, 5% interest, or, which is which is not easy to pay. It's no. 5% a year. What if you get a million dollars and if there's, you know, a tenth of a percent, are you willing to pay a tenth of, per, of percent in perpetuity in order to just pocket the million? And, and, you know, the day that you'd have to repay it may not come. So... So you can see what craziness happens whenever you give away money free, and that's effectively effectively been the case yeah. for the last twelve years. And and so people take the money and they 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 do things they wouldn't otherwise do, um, and often they simply buy their own shares. It's a way of increasing the return with your company. You may say some of you are probably asking, why do people buy shares of stock? What's the what good is that? Well, think of it this way. If you're not making much money per share, let's say you have a million shares outstanding, a company, and let's say you're making a dollar a share. So you're not doing real well and your your shareholders are a little irritated. So you know that you, you have this money that's essentially given out free. Right. And so you say, well, wait, if I go and, and I reduce the number of shares outstanding by half, then I've doubled my income per share. So you go into the market, you find the people who want to sell their shares, and of course that's what a stock exchange is, and you you spend the money to buy 500,000 shares. Well, guess what you look like next year? Yeah, the, the income per share has doubled. So, so suddenly you look like a brilliant person. You're making more money, but did the company do better? It, it, are they managing better? Do they have a better product? Did they did they they spend do capital expenditures to improve the company? Was there uh, research and, it's and development? Not reflective of that. No. Yeah. Was there any new products? Any new research and development? Right. No. But don't they look good? They look good. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And why do they do that? Well, the money was kind of free, and and what they paid for it was insignificant compared to the fact that they doubled their in their earnings per share. So. It's not the best use of money generally. There are a few cases where that makes sense, but the vast majority of cases, it's, it's, it represents leadership that can't find a better solution, to put it simply. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm, I'm pointing to this as one of these, you know, when you have a perfect storm, what that means is you have a, a number of factors that, that very improbably come together at the same time and produce something wildly destructive often or something wildly um, unusual. And in this case, I'm afraid destructive and, but, but not in the long run. I'm an optimist. So don't, don't misconstrue my, my remarks because I think that we may have a little more difficulty ahead. Um, I'm by no means a survivalist in the sense that, you know, I don't own something in the Montana mountains. I don't have a gallon of five years of food storage and whatnot. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I, I do believe that that there are natural laws out there that that require 
compensation when you violate them. And, and I think that uh, when you look at the series of events that have come together and probably here that really are not connected, you can argue, well, the pandemic is not connected to the Ukraine except in some imaginative way. And, and neither is neither is the fact that we're at the tail end of this 12-year period of, of easing. So these, and we could point to a few other things incidentally. I don't intend this list to be exhaustive, but I'm just looking at these massive, massive events that have weighed heavily on the world economy and, uh, and particularly the United States economy. And, and when you put these three factors I just mentioned, where we have a war, we have lots of expenditures now we didn't anticipate. And, and when I talk about the Ukraine, the Ukraine, when I talk about Ukraine, I'm really talking, I, I should talk more generally about economic sanctions because there's maybe there's a better way or a different point to make. I'll say that. And that's deglobalization. So if we were adding a factor to this, I would add deglobalization. And that picks up, you know, the the trade wars that are going on. Right. And they were going on in advance of this. So these are not really Yeah, related. that's not new, really. Right. So the but, but we have to talk about Ukraine separately, but still deglobalization is a phenomenon that's developed just in the past two or three years. Trump accelerated it, granted, uh, over his dispute with China, which I applaud. But but still, um, deglobalization was going on. So we, we thought, beginning with the turn into this century, that the world was going, barriers were going to crumble and that the world would become this friendly, competitive place and that you would have comparative value, which is means that you have countries that are strong in one area produce that, and they use this thing to buy things from countries that are strong in another area. So they kind of trade products, but they do that using money. Things like that make make a free trade a wonderful thing for the world at large. So if you can have free trade, true free trade, naturally everybody wants yeah. it. It's it's the natural healthy condition for the world economy. But realistically, it's. You know, I think we deceived ourselves because we went through a period where China was growing rapidly. They were more friendly at that time, um, and we were willing to overlook their misbehavior, their their stealing of of um, trade secrets, uh, intellectual property, et cetera. I mean, all that stuff we were willing to kind of overlook because we thought, you know, we want to bring them into the world, and then we'll civilize them. Yeah. But it never really happened. No, it didn't. And, and it, they became increasingly militaristic. Um, they have become more militaristic in the last five to six years, but but they um, they were increasingly confrontational on an economic scale and uh, and really exploitive of our kindness. They took advantage of us, and we were naive and generous. The West was, and and they invited our companies to come in, and and they yeah. just blatantly stole their technology, and then then kicked them out when they complained, um, or even if they didn't complain, in some cases they were kicked out. So. So wasn't fair play. The, the the globalization thing. It was a wonderful era in many ways. It couldn't continue. Um, it, we couldn't let it continue under China's terms. So uh, now walls are going up with various countries around the world, and and with these walls coming up, deglobalization is going to have a huge impact. It's gonna it's gonna have an impact that's going to increase costs. Um, there will be supply chain issues. Maybe not the way they are now. I think it'll settle down from this craziness that we have right so now. So you believe it'll get better within the next, say, couple of years? I think most experts believe that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, the vast majority of experts believe it'll get better. 
you know, much of this is related. That's related to the pandemic. Um, that those supply chain. At least chain we still issues. have toilet paper. Yeah, we're not so facing far. that problem. Yeah, <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Depending on what Putin does in the next ten days. Oh but, boy. Well, anyway, though, I, I, but I do think, yeah, we'll have supply chain issues long term on a on a, a lower scale. Just because when you have deglobalization, it means there's more more obstacles to importation and and exportation of goods. They're just more obstacles. So there's lots of bilateral trade agreements. So rather than assuming that you can have international free trade, instead you have to find your allies. You have to do individual bilateral deals. So it becomes it becomes very um, uh, uh, quirky, clunky, um, inefficient, and uh, and unpredictable because those things change. I would change. think so. I would think so. And I'm afraid that that you know we'll have on a on a more general scale, you know, we'll have an Eastern Bloc and a Western Bloc. Now, some of the Eastern Bloc, like Japan, will of course, and and South Korea and uh, Taiwan, will will participate with any trade agreements that exist in the West. Uh, but I do think there will be several countries that will unite in the aftermath of this, and and they may engage in some trade with us. Of course, I don't think this will be. But you think there's going to be like separate camps? Almost? Yeah, there'll be camps. I, I think for sure. I'd love to think I'm wrong, but anyway, so. So that inefficiency. So what what are the implications of all these forces that I've mentioned? And one of the implications of all these forces I've mentioned is inflation. I mean, inflation's coming, and it's I mean it's here. It's we, here. We're, we're at 7.9%. As of this show, the last I last report I saw, and this is the official, this is the 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 headline inflation number was 7.6, then to 7.9, and some are predicting that it's going to go higher. I think it'll go higher, but... Yeah, um, unfortunately. I, I mean, do I think it's going to come down in the next uh, less than two years? Yes. Uh, you know, the thing about doing shows like this is it really puts you on the line. It, it, it You know, all those conversations that we all have with our friends and family and whatnot, um, you know, rarely are they recorded to where... To where you, you know, somebody can say to you, you know, you're predicted such and such. So there's a record of this. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what I'm talking about here um, are just my opinions, and uh, historically, you know, I, I guess I can say from investment standpoint that I've been right more than wrong, but that leaves a lot of opportunity to be wrong. So, um, so in this case, I'd like to think that. For example, the inflation will not go to double digits. I tend to think it will. Now, not high double digits, not crazy double digits, but do I think we can suppress it before it goes up another couple of points? I don't think so. Uh, and then, of course, there are so those. What's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, and 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 many people would argue that these rates are not accurate anyway. That that they're that they're artificially low, uh, and and I know that they are because many of you are thinking, well, wait. I can tell you that the things that I buy are up more than seven and a oh, half. Oh my to 8%. goodness! A couple of weeks ago, I filled up my Santa Fe, and I normally it took, you know, thirty five dollars, fifty seven bucks, and I looked and I thought, no, there's got to be a mistake, and I'm like, no, gas has gone way up. Yeah, but it was shocking. I mean, I had sticker shock, and and I think that that many people will uh, price that expectation in. And that's the thing about inflation. Inflation, believe it or not, is largely a psychological phenomenon. 
Now, if you ask what's called a monetarist, I hate to use these phrases because the purpose of this show is to really be helpful and to not to use a bunch of technical terms to where uh, you, you walk away understanding maybe half of what was said. How many times do you have that experience watching financial shows? I sometimes have that yeah. experience following financial shows, and I know a lot more than most. Right. So I really don't want this show to be something where we use technical terms to show how smart we are. I want us to instead to aspire above all to be understood. So with that in mind, though, I, I do want to mention that that monetarists are people who believe that, as Milton Friedman famously said, anywhere and everywhere, inflation is a is a product of the inflation uh, of the increase of the money supply. So I guess when I think of probably the most prominent advocate of the monetarist school, it has to be Friedman. Um, Friedman is far and away the clearly the person who is the champion of this school, a Nobel Prize winner, incidentally. And he was at University of Chicago. I'm a big fan of University of Chicago. Two, I uh, did know two that. Two daughters went to University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. I really think it's the best university in the world. And I, and I believe that before they went there. That may have influenced their going there. I don't know. But anyway, so Friedman was famously at, it's a school of thought, actually a philosophy. It's called the Chicago School. But when they say that in economics, they're talking about a philosophy of economics. And they call it the Chicago School. But it's just, a, it's a philosophy that quite frankly, I'm not sure the majority of the faculty, I'm, I am sure, in fact, the majority of the faculty today probably does not hold. But it's still called that. Because at the time, it it was... Um, I guess the the point of origin of this theory was at University of Chicago. There are several very prominent economists who advocated this view. And and some regard it as the antithesis of of what Keynes would say. And and, and you know, really it's not the antithesis, actually. Um I've heard I've heard uh, uh Milton Friedman who has been interviewed on this topic, and uh he had some good things to say, believe it or not. He was not Keynesian, but still he had some good things, and he felt that Keynes was misunderstood. Uh, those of you who are interested in that topic. But anyway, so a monetarist would say, look, in all cases, it relates to an increase of money supply. Well, you know, the pandemic, we know, caused a a policy that was already firmly entrenched, which was that of, of accommodation, of quantitative easing, to be put on steroids. So we saw that magnified two, threefold, uh, during the the eighteen yeah. or so months of the the, the depths, stimulus and, checks, and so yeah. so we we saw that the balance sheet of the Fed, which you might think the balance sheet of the Fed, if you had asked them in nineteen thirteen at the, I guess it was officially, yeah, you know, I think it was officially passed by law in thirteen. It may have been fourteen. Anyway, if you had asked Congress at the time, or you had asked these people at Jekyll Island who kind of conceived this notion. If you had asked them, so what would you predict would be on the balance sheet of the Fed? I think they would predict a balance sheet that it might temporarily go up, you know, when it would when the Fed would rush in to deal with an right. emergency, pandemics and emergency. So they, they would say, well it would it would occasionally go up, but then it would quickly shrink back down. You know, kind of like a wave coming up on the beach. And if yeah. you have a high wave you know, uh, then storms, then you're going to see see that more quantitative easing, which means that when that the way that they increase their balance sheet is that they take money, which they invent, create, whatever, 
and they go out and and buy stuff. They buy debt. They buy Fed securities. They buy AAA corporate securities, maybe AA corporate, uh, like like bonds. They go out and buy these. It's debt. It's deli. They're not buying equities here in the United States, unlike the 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 Fed at the Bank of England. But anyway, right. So not Bank of England, Bank of oh, Japan. Japan. Anyway, yeah. so so if you had asked them, what do you think though that for any period of time? Uh, would be the balance on the on the Fed's balance sheet, and they'd I think they'd say close to zero because they'd expect that over time they would dump whatever they had to run out and buy to push money into the economy. Well, I can tell you right now we're at close to ten trillion, close nine point five or something trillion on the balance sheet of the Fed, and they've not started. They're a long way from reducing it. They're fearful of reducing it. They're increasing rates now. Uh, because they do intend to, we're going to get serious about inflation. So now, serious, it turns out, is a quarter of a point increase from virtually yeah. zero. So they're still under one point. <laughs> so, um, and that, that's a federal funds rate. So so what, what they have accumulated over time has worked its way up to over $9 trillion. Even before the pandemic, we were above five trillion. We may have dropped below five to four point something trillion. But then it quickly went up. And I think we can all agree it went up far more than it should have. Far more than it should have. So how's the Fed going to get rid of this? And the way that that one way to get rid of it is to go ahead and sell these securities back. And what happens when you sell securities back? People in the in the in the economy give money to the Fed. So you may say, well, how do they pull back money supply? Two mechanisms primarily. Okay. One is through the, the, the federal funds rate. If they increase the rate of money, then that means they, they reduce the amount of money circulating because the cost is higher. But another mechanism that they don't talk a lot about, the way to, incre- to decrease this money supply that we're all aware of, that has gone up, the money supply has increased at a rate faster than any time in America's history. Uh, not quite... Not quite the extent of the Weimar Republic in Germany after mm-hmm. World War One, but I mean we can see what happens when you when when you decide to dump a lot of money onto the market. Right. Anyway, so another way though to reduce inflation to take money out because remember that's what the the monetarists believe inflation at root always is is too much money is you buy back. So uh, I'm sorry, you sell the securities that you've already bought. So if they have U.S. Treasury bonds, if they have corporate bonds, and and they total up to, let's say, $10 trillion. They could take $10 trillion out of the economy in days. Now, this this is not something we'd want them to do because it would be scary, the impact it would have. Yeah, I'm wondering how that would work. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess the dollar would go up in value. Inflation would definitely disappear. But you, we could go into a recession because recession remembers where a dollar has more value. So, you know, deflation is a scary thing because that's what we saw in in the Great Depression, where yeah. where it, the problem wasn't there was too much money and you had inflation and things were very expensive, or they were nominally expensive. No, in in the the Great Depression, prices went down because money was so scarce that people couldn't come up with enough money to pay for things. So if if bread was 50 cents a loaf, they had to lower the price to 30 cents a loaf. And even then people didn't have 30 cents. So that's that that's what happens when when you have um, a circumstance in which you you have 
money that increases in value, the opposite of inflation is deflation. So deflation is not a, can be a very scary thing. And, but, but would it cause deflation if the Fed turned around and did this? I, yeah, I think it would. But just to illustrate a point to you, if, you, if the Fed decides that they want to stop inflation and they want to stop it now, they could turn around and dump all of these securities, $10 trillion. So that means that, that $10 trillion will come out of, the, out of the circulation in some form, and it'll be dumped into the Fed. The Fed will essentially lock it up. So it's gone, effectively. Might as well have been destroyed. So now the money supply has gone down $10 trillion. That's an example of one of the tools the Fed has to where they can, they can reverse what they've done. Remember, the right. way they put it in was they decided we're going to buy these securities. So they buy it with invented with new money. So when they acquired that $10 trillion, that meant they dumped $10 trillion into the economy, money that wasn't there. They, they printed it and they distributed it. Sometimes they don't have to print it. Sometimes it's digital. So, But the point's the same. It increases the money supply. It's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a powerful tool. So, so when you think about inflation, you think about all these forces are, are all working toward inflation. They all are inflationary forces. Um, and the one force that I'll mention quickly, um, and then, then we'll move on because I want to wrap this up here, uh, one force that that doesn't get a lot of conversation now, but I think will in the next few years, is the demographic changes that are happening. I mean, the low birth rate. It's It's been going on for a long time, and right. China right now is already within a four or five years of feeling it in terms of the ability of their, those who are retiring versus those who are in the workforce. That ratio... You, you has to maintain a certain balance. And when it doesn't, then you know you become a poorer nation because you, you don't have the ability to be productive. Your productivity mm-hmm. for any level of technology, if you were to freeze technology, any level of, of productivity is going to be governed by the number of individuals you have to work in if you freeze technology. Um, so by definition... If you, if you have fewer people that are in the workforce, and that, that's where China is. China, Japan, of course, is, is the role model for this sort of difficulty. Uh, but, but China is probably the biggest problem because they have such a huge economy and, and so many people that when a, when a substantial part pulls out, it's a crisis for a whole yeah. lot of older people. So I think that that when we when we think about these inflationary forces, which I've talked about today, I just want to throw out one that that I think will will be a powerful factor going forward that we need to consider, and and that's the, this fact of demographics. And it is inflationary. If I characterize it as deflationary, then I misspoke because I think that this will force up prices unless there's a technological solution. The, the deflationary force would be the technological solutions. And some say that those are going to come fast enough to compensate for this reduction in, in people in the U.S. Right. You can see we have these trends. Everywhere in the West, we're not producing at a rate to replace ourselves. This is true in the West and it's true in the East. Only in the Southern Hemisphere you know, are you seeing this going on? But, but, but where I think it counts for the world right now is what's happening uh, in the northern hemisphere, and, I, and it's just for various reasons. You, you can supply your own. Um, we've been seeing this rate fall in China. We know it was legislated, but, 
but China is facing a pro- a problem that um, I don't think technology can rescue it in time. In the long term, technology will allow us to get a lot more done with fewer people. Right. But but, but is it going to come in less than ten years? Because their problem will be felt in a big way in ten years. So uh, Kathy Wood of Arc Investing, she's real famous for being an advocate of the idea that no, 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 technology is coming so fast and so powerfully that it's going to solve all these problems. And productivity is going to go way up in the West and and in the industrialized world, especially um, that that we should all be buying these growth stocks. But I won't get off on that idea. I'm not a fan of that that view. But I wanted to acquaint you though with the with these economic forces and and to make some comments about them. So my prediction would be that I think we're going to have inflation for the balance of this year. I think the Fed's probably going to get serious in the not-too-distant future. They're not now. They increased a point last week, uh, excuse me, a quarter of a point last week. I think they'll get serious by the end of the year. So I do see inflation coming down. I just don't think it'll come down this year. So what do you do with with, with the things we've talked about? I kind of wanted to quickly make a few comments. And I know some of you all, this is a longer video than, than we normally do, I guess. And and so I know some of y'all will tune out. I get that. Some of you, I think, might be interested. So, um, you know, what do you do with your money? Three big options that loom out there and kind of dominate the 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 range of of movement. One is bonds. The other is stocks. The other is real estate. Bonds, of course, we're scared of because you know if rates do in fact go. If we if the Fed increases rates as they are, then it means that the face value of bonds will come down. It means interest rates will go up. So uh, you have to keep in mind this inverse relationship between interest rates and the price of bond. So that means if you buy a bond and the market rate of interest is, say, 5% now, doesn't matter what the bond is. If, if the market rate of interest is 5% and you buy a bond for $1,000, if the market rate of interest goes up to 6%, then that bond will... Uh, the value of it will be reduced so that it's in effect yielding 6%. So it means, I don't know what the math is on that, uh, but so if you bought a $1,000 bond, it'd probably go down to something like $800. Don't hold me to that math. So the whole idea, though, is I want you to get that why it happens, that if if you have a market rate of interest that goes up, then people are going to say, well, I want the 6%. I don't want the right. 5%. And the only way they can get the 6% with your bond is for them to pay $800 for it, not 1000 So when they pay 800 guess what? They're getting the market rate. Now, it's true in the opposite direction, too, is the good news. So if rates go down and you have a bond that's worth $1,000 at the time you buy it and it's paying 5% interest and rates go down and 5% turns out to be a great number, let's say the market rate's 4%. Guess what? Your bond's going to sell for like $1,200, whatever the math is. But I want you to understand this inverse relationship. So now we're in an environment where it looks like rates are going up. And so as long as rates are going up, I don't want to buy a bond that the face value is going to go down. Right. uh, Now, it's true. You can hold a bond until it matures and it'll pay face value. But you're going to be going through a lot of economic change during that period of time. And you're stuck. You can't move out of the bond. Um, Stocks. I've said this before. I think if you're, if you're determined to buy stocks now, I, I would focus on stocks that are va- called value stocks, meaning stocks that have low P.E. ratios. That means that they're bargains. Uh, that means that, for example, the stock price might be 
the P.E. ratio, the ratio between the earnings per share and the price per share. Okay. That's that's a P.E. ratio. It kind of makes sense. You know, how much did it earn? If you take the earnings and divide it by the total number of shares, how much did each share earn? And, and then when you look at the ratio of that, then it tells you what's called the P.E. ratio, the, the price to earnings ratio. And it's based on per share. So, You'll notice that all the high-flying tech companies, many of them, they're notorious for having P.E. ratios very high, meaning they don't earn much, but people pay a whole lot of money for them because they, they see this pie in the sky or they, they right. see profits down the road. So so th- those are called growth stocks. In other words, you're not buying earnings. You're buying the, the, the potential growth sometime down the road. But the alternative is is another kind of the opposite approach is to buy growth, excuse me, value stocks. And value stocks are the reverse. It's where you're saying, wow, this is a P.E. ratio of 5 to 1 or 10 to 1 or 12 to 1. I mean, that means that they're earning a lot of money for the price. So that kind of, you can see it kind of makes it a bargain, kind of makes it a good value. And often those stocks- Get more bang for your buck. You do. And often they they pay dividends. Uh, they, They almost assuredly have good earnings if they have that P.E. ratio. So at a time when there's a lots of uncertainty and we don't know where interest rates are going and we don't know uh, where where um, new technologies will end up because you know so much of it is futuristic, there's a temptation to follow the strategy that that Warren Buffett famously has, and that's where he tends to focus on on buying bargain stocks and he sticks with things that he knows, industries that he understands products and services that he understands, things that he knows that come heck or high water, they're not going away. Mars candy bars, Coca-Cola. I mean, he's, uh, he sticks with things that are fundamental, even like railroad stocks. Now, and you may say, well, railroads seem to have declined in the last hundred years, but not, but, but not in a fundamental way, meaning, yeah, passenger trains went away. But, but what, what he knows is that to transport goods in America, it's pretty reliable that we'll continue to use those because it's so efficient and so cheap uh, compared to trucks. It's not going away. So he sticks with things like that. And and that gives him the confidence that when we have a downturn in the economy that, yeah, these will be affected some, but are people still going to buy food? Are they still going to buy, you mentioned toilet paper. Are they still going to buy things like that? Staples. So there are lots of things that we can be pretty confident that they're not going to go away. And further, the P.E. ratio, the 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 um, amount that you're paying per share for the amount of money you're getting per share, I mean, that is a very good, it's a bargain number compared to growth stocks, for example. So if you're going to, to, to look at stocks, I mean, I think that that's the safest way to proceed. You're not going to lose your shirt that way. And there's a lot of funds that are value funds. We ought to post on the on the website the fact that Morningstar is a great place to list yeah. a lot of funds. And these, incidentally, can be mutual funds. They can be ETFs. Um, and I won't get into the difference of those two, but 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 both have their merits. But the point is they're a collection of a bunch of them, so you don't have to choose one stock or one particular industry because, you know, you don't want all your eggs in one basket in the, in this scenario we're describing. So I, I would suggest that, that you do consider... Um, looking at, at growth stocks, if you're going to be in stocks, let me mention here, another approach is to be in cash. You may say, well, wait, why would I have cash in an inflationary time? Look, there's going to be some devastation and those have the ability to pick things up, to pick up bargains later. 
I, I think will be in a much better shape. So do you lose 5% of your purchasing power, maybe a little more over the course of a year? Yeah, but but is that going to be offset by, by the decline in prices, by the depreciation that's going to occur in real estate and stocks and everything else to where you will make more than you will lose by holding your money in purchasing power? I tend to think so. So uh, some of the, the best analysts say cash is is the lesser evil, despite the inflation. Uh, real estate, uh, I wouldn't buy real estate now, uh, at least residential, and I don't know enough about... Yeah, it's still a seller's market. Big yeah, time. I've bought some off of, some commercial buildings, office space, but I'm not by no means an, an expert on it. And and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real tumultuous market now. I mean, there's a lot of change going on. We don't know what percent of the workforce is going to end up returning to these buildings. Yeah, the brick and mortar, uh, yeah. right? I was reading in Manhattan, the, the, the 30% of the workforce has returned to those office buildings in Manhattan. In Manhattan? It's shocking. Yeah. Just shocking. And even though the real estate market's doing well, <laughs> I mean, when I say real estate, I meant residential real estate. The residential real estate market's on fire. I mean, it's it's just an odd thing. And, and so I don't know what they're going to do with this additional space, but that, there's an article on this topic in the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, so real estate, you have to do very carefully. So I'll talk more about residential because I know more about it. Uh, I would stay out of it in terms of, of buying right now. I would wait. I, I think, yeah, it may go up a little more this year, but it's going to settle. And I think I think it's going to give up a little bit. I think there'll be a retreat probably next year. So I don't see a massive yeah, retreat. at some point it does. Yeah, I don't see a bubble, but I could be wrong. But even if I'm wrong, then so much the better uh, because if you hold back thinking there's just going to be a retreat and it ends up being a route, yeah. so much the better for you. But either way, I wouldn't be buying in right now. I just, that's what it's I'm- It's not pers- a good time. That's what I personally am doing. So if it's bad advice, I can tell you I believe in it enough to where that's what I'm doing and I and I think it's good advice. So- um, so I'm going to I'm going to hold back on buying more residential now. Now I will say this: if you own residential, it probably is a good time to sell it. If you're thinking about selling it, not if you're in a house that you want to right you, you want to be carried out, you know, to the funeral home out of that house. <laughs> then yeah, obviously you don't sell it. But but for those of you who are thinking, you know, I think I want to sell this house. I'm waiting for the right time. Now's the right now, time. Yeah, you're going to get the most <laughs> this, bang for your buck right th- now. This is it. I can't imagine it getting any better. It might get a little bit better. Who knows? I, I would have told you I couldn't imagine it getting any better six months ago. But it won't. It won't keep getting better. Meaning, when you have a supply down at these shockingly low levels, yeah, it won't stay this way. I'm telling you. Plus, we have a lot of construction going on. This construction is going to come online in the next six months. I mean, it not. It, it's not the same amount of construction everywhere. And I don't know about St. Louis specifically. Uh, but but I look at a number of markets. Uh, it's funny. I look the least at St. Louis market um, because I have investments in other places. But but the point is, I can tell you that shockingly low supplies almost everywhere, and, and this cannot go on. I was reading an article about Dallas last week, and they they had a huge drop in residential inventory just in the past you know, seven months or so. Yeah, Dallas I can't is, remember the numbers, but it was really, really... They're one of those on fire. Dallas, of course, Austin. Yeah. Uh, but some people think, oh, it's just Austin in Texas. No, Dallas has been Dallas. on fire too. Wow. Um, and Raleigh uh, <laughs> is one of, oddly enough, has had one of the biggest drops in inventory. I mean, it's just, it, we know that what happens throughout human history when you have this much demand for housing 
you have builders come in and fill it. Mm-hmm. So don't doubt that despite the hardships with supply chains and whatnot, I can tell you builders are out there through crook and hook to build houses and they're determined to do it. Um, and, and I think that we're going to have some relief yeah, in terms of supply an opportunity for them later in the year, mm-hmm. which means that that would have a easing effect on prices. So I'm suggesting if you do own a house and you do plan to sell it anytime soon, I'm just telling you, if it were my house, I'd sell it now. I'd sell it yesterday. One, you know, two other points I didn't make is, um, you know, th- this is a recommendation that I really think might be worth considering for those of us who are over 60. You know, now is really a good time to enter the labor market on your own terms. Um, there's gig economy, which means you just kind of make yourself out there to do particular jobs. So you're like an independent contractor and you might... Freelancer. Yeah, freelancer. You're out there to take jobs as they come. You take some, you turn back others. There's that. But there's also such a vast uh, range of options that's available to you now that wouldn't have been available to you two years ago. It may not be available to you to you two years from now. But it uh, is right now. It's yeah. pretty hot. Yeah, I mean, anything you wanted to do, anything that you thought, well, I'm not really qualified to do that. Now, let's put aside things like brain surgery, but but things that you thought, well, uh, working in uh, in Lowe's, for example, you may think, you know, that, that'd be kind of a cool job to have, but I don't know much about tools and construction. Um, there are lots of examples like that. I'm telling you, well, now, let me tell you, they'll hire you, number one, and number two, you'll learn it. And and it might and we're talking about things only things you like so naturally don't consider something you don't want to do but but you know people who are over sixty now this is a great opportunity for you to cherry pick some income you you choose something to do that you like that's and not miserable the wages are so much higher oh and going higher yeah I mean Amazon's hiring left and right and Amazon is a serious job right meaning it might be more work than any of us would want actually. Uh, but I, I have a friend who had no background in that field at all and wandered in and they hired him and now he has all these stock options and he keeps getting pay raises, um, substantial pay raises. So um, I'm just telling you that that in this economy, if you're somebody who's willing to show up, you're you're suddenly a prize employee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you get all these pay raises because... You know, they're going to do anything to keep you. Yeah, and the people you're you're competing <laughs> against, where there's just you know, America. Unfortunately, there's there's not the level of initiative. I'm afraid that we saw with the Boomer generation. Uh, but whether or not that's true, I can tell you this is true. Right now you, is about as good a time as you will have ever had, and I suspect will ever have to go out and cherry pick a job that you want to do part time or full-time. It's a good way for you to cushion your retirement fund to, you know, add uh, some extra money for whatever purposes you might have. This is a good time to think about that. And all too often people, once they retire and they spend a year or two, you know, pursuing their hobbies, then suddenly they rule out the possibility of returning to work and doing something. Maybe this is a good time to do that. And one final point, seems like off the point, but I'm going to make it as we wrap up. One of the best things you can do for your financial well-being is to maintain your health. And I'm mentioning this because I have in mind a friend who I visited recently. I want to be very vague about these comments. Who I visited recently. Yeah, and, don't want to give them away. And, uh, and 
he uh, he has retired has been retired for a little while, uh, has gained weight, and we talk about you know his plans, and he has plans just like all of us do. You do, I do, and and I'm looking at him and looking at some of the the issues that he's had. Again, I don't want to name that, but some he's had a few issues with his health, much of it related to inactivity and the weight issue. Yeah, and I'm thinking, how do you simultaneously? plan, make these financial arrangements, which he does very well. He plans financially in a very uh, uh, methodical way and yet neglect the the vehicle that, that, your that you require to take you there. So there's something uh, absurdly perverse about people who develop future plans with such glee and such particularity and such care and all the while being completely inattentive to the the body the vehicle that that has to be in good shape to deliver them there it's like the vehicle doesn't matter it's like oh i just need to work on these things out there and and it's like they as if it's possible to forget that this thing is what has to be in good shape to get you there right. and to experience. For you to enjoy it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, to me that is so obvious, but I look around me and I, and I see people who I'm. it appears that thought has never occurred to. And I don't think it's intentional. No. I don't. I mean, no, not intentional, meaning they want to do that, but do they do it uh, knowingly? That's different from intentionally. Why do they neglect? Why do they neglect? I mean, there's hundred different reasons. There are, and I don't want to be judgmental. So, I mean, I know it's hard. I mean, and it's not, it's harder for some than others. It's easy for some people to say, oh, why can't you do this? Because I can do this. Well, there are other things that other person can do that this, that I can't do, for example. So, you know, we all have to be careful about being judgmental. So I'm making this point to you as somebody who wants to say something useful to you that, that goes well, believe it or not, with everything else we've talked about. This is just as relevant to everything we've talked about. And my, my, my bigger point to you is it, it's, it's relevant to everything in your life in which you're planning for a wonderful future, and yet you, you might fail to consider the importance of maintaining the, the machine, the vehicle, the body that, that, that you are utterly dependent on mm-hmm. to deliver you to that goal. So uh, that's probably a good point to wrap yeah, up on. Covered a lot of good points. We did. Some of you I bored stiff. I know that. I'm hoping there are a few of you that hung out for this for this whole uh, I don't want to say diatribe lecture whatever discussion discussion learning session uh, speculation maybe yeah. Anyway, um, we we do we we do this show with the intention of being useful, and I hope this is useful to you. Remember, I'm not an expert. I'm not a, a financial analyst. Anything I say to you, I'm just telling you, kind of. But you can play one on a podcast. Yeah, right, on a podcast, <laughs> not television. And and uh, I'm telling you, you know, my thinking out loud. So I kind of shared with you what I think about out loud and what I do with my life. Uh, maybe that's a better way to think about it than to think that I'm saying, you know, you need to do these things. A few of them I might say that of, for example, the last point. But anyway, I hope this was helpful. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. 
Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.